Geopolitics and Empire is joined by returning guest Eve Engler. He's a Montreal-based activist and author who has published 12 books, including his latest Stand on Guard, For Whom? A People's History of the Canadian Military. Welcome back, Eve. Thanks, sir. Thanks for having me. It's been a few years. Uh, you know, uh, some years ago, I've, I've interviewed you. I don't even remember once or, or twice, uh, perhaps. And let me just start by saying that if you have not purchased some of Eve Engler's uh, books, you're truly missing out. I've studied the American and European military industrial complex for a long time. And Eve truly fills in the gap when it comes to Canada. His writing on the matter is uh, to the point, backed by a lot of evidence and demonstrates the role Canada plays in the Anglo-American Empire's global adventures. And I think we should start with your recent speaking of truth to power, Eve. Uh, I, be I believe there were two recent instances where you dropped in on government meetings uh, or, co or conferences and called out the Canadian military-industrial complex. The most recent was you interrupting a press conference given by Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland to ask if she's uh, a warmonger and to criticize her for devoting half a billion dollars for weapons to fight Russia. Are you a warmonger? Are you a warmonger? Half a billion dollars? Half a billion dollars in weapons to, to uh, Ukraine to fight war? Do you want a third world war with Russia? Are you a warmonger? Why didn't you support the Minsk Accord? Why didn't you support a negotiating settlement? Why didn't you support the Minsk Accord? Why do you support promoting NATO expansion? Shame on you! Shame on you! Do you want third world war? Don't escalate. We don't want nuclear war. Shame on you. Why did you promote? Why did you promote NATO expansion? Shame on you. No room. Half a billion dollars. That's unprecedented for weapons. Pour tuer les gens. Pour l'escalade. On veut pas l'escalade. Arrête la guerre. Arrête avec l'escalation. L'escalade. Stop escalating the conflict. Shame on you. Shame on you. And the other where you interrupt Canadian Foreign Minister Melanie. Uh, Jolie's speech asking to stop using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia at the Montreal Council on Foreign Relations. Stop escalating the war. Stop sending arms. Why didn't you push Kyiv to sign the Minsk Accord? Why? No to NATO. Shame on you. You're going to push us to third World War III. Shame on you. No to war. No to escalation. Stop. Stop sending weapons. Stop training the military. Stop using Russia or stop using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. No to NATO. No 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 l'escalation. Stop using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. Stop using Ukraine as a proxy against Russia. No to war. No to NATO. You know, could you tell us about those two events? You know, what was going through your head, what happened, your motivations, how you prepared and, you know, how it all went down? Yeah, well, the first one was uh, a few weeks ago, a friend in uh, uh, Waterloo sent me uh, the information that Melanie Jolie was giving this speech about Ukraine at the Montreal Council on Foreign Relations. And we had uh, a group uh, before the pandemic that was called Disruption Network Canada. And where we across the country, we sort of a, a loose network of people who shared information of when politicians, um, cabinet ministers, the prime minister were speaking in different uh, cities across the country. And we would uh, show up and, uh, you know, various forms of uh, political messaging from disruptions to uh, holding placards to just asking tough questions. 
And uh, but that, of course, was mostly shut down during the pandemic. But um, my friend sent me the contact information for Jolie and I uh, was early morning uh, breakfast uh, meeting and I uh, thought about the different ways of maybe getting inside the meeting. And I decided with I would just show up late and I would uh, just try to walk into the meeting and hope that they didn't uh, realize that I didn't pay one hundred dollars uh, for the for the breakfast and you know, to be there. And I was able to basically uh, show up late, have the woman who was uh, at the door uh, uh, respond to me very uh, nicely uh, and uh, had to sort of open the door before she realized I didn't have a ticket. By that point, I was already inside. And then I spent about, uh, you know, 50 seconds uh, inside the room, uh, challenging uh, Melanie Jolie's uh, position on um, uh, escalating the conflict uh, in Ukraine with Russia and, uh, saying that, you know, Canada was, uh, had failed to support the Minsk accords to try to end uh, the conflict in Eastern Ukraine had been, you know, sending weapons had been, you know, uh, pushing NATO expansion eastward and basically said, I don't, you know, we, I don't think we want a uh, nuclear war. We don't want a, you know, a, a, a even greater conflict than is already uh, going on. And um, so doing that and having success in doing that uh, kind of uh, rekindled a bit of the spirit that we had had pr prior to the pandemic, uh, where, you know, trying to show up at different uh, uh, ministers uh, meetings. And I got to say that, like, <clears throat> you know, I was really I questioned doing the the disruption with Melanie Jolie, because the way these things work is, is oftentimes you just go there, you try to get in, you're not able to get in. Sometimes you end up getting arrested. And it, in this case, I didn't. But, it, you know, you sort of have to expend a certain amount of energy, uh, whether it succeeds or not. Um, but I, but with uh, Jolie, what kind of forced me to really do it was this sort of sense that this is, you know, we're going down some crazy path and there's very little uh, uh, resistance to this. There's almost no space within the dominant media to say anything but the, you know, what the, what the politicians in Ottawa and Washington want to be sit, to be heard. So it's really important to be there and, you know, do disruptive things that, that kind of break through the, the media, the media uh, blackout. Um, Actually, after that, uh, I found out that Prime Minister Trudeau was uh, participating in this uh, a parade, uh, a Greek Independence Day parade, and I actually went up there to uh, to heckle him, and I did heckle him. Uh, but I uh, I had some problems with my uh, my video my video recorder, so I, I failed to uh, to actually record that. Um, and then uh, last week, I uh, and I again I, I challenged him on uh, on. Uh, on Ukraine and on Canadian policy in Ukraine. And then last week, uh, Christian Freeland, the, um, the finance minister and deputy prime minister, and I should say the former Canadian foreign minister who had a very uh, hawkish, aggressive uh, policy uh, across the world on, you know, vis-a-vis -vis Venezuela, but also, uh, you know, with regards to Ukraine, her her grandfather's um, was a, uh, a neo-Nazi or was a Nazi um, uh, 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 propagandist during during World War II in the Ukraine, and you know when the Nazis got uh, driven out of the Ukraine, he he uh, he followed uh, followed them and ultimately uh, um, emigrated to uh, to Canada. But but uh, but a couple of days before her press conference here in Montreal, which was it was um, about kind of promoting the budget, and in the budget uh, they not only massively increased military spending, which were, which was already increasing, they specifically devoted half a billion dollars to uh, arms. Uh, to Ukraine, and this is on top of about 90 million that's already been sent or, or announced in, in recent weeks. I think this is unprecedented in, in Canadian foreign policy history of having a budget allotment of uh, quite a significant budget allotment for weapons 
uh, for a, a war that is ongoing. Again, this is not this is not selling weapons. This is giving. This is donating. The the uh, the other forms of assistance to Ukraine. That's always loans. The weapons are always free. Those are donations, uh, which is very telling about you know the policies of the the people in Ottawa. Um, but yeah, so I got into the press conference after actually trying a previous event earlier in that day that Christian Freeland was was uh, speaking at and, and failing to get in. And I got into the press conference and I and I called her a warmonger and. Uh, of course, her security and the RCMP, you know, quickly pushed me out of the room. But I was able to get the message across that that uh, you know this five hundred million dollars in weapons was was wrong. Uh, the NATO expansion was wrong. The sort of escalation of Canadian policy was wrong. And fortunately, uh, there was quite a bit of media in the room. Most of them ignored it, but a few of the major media outlets actually did cover uh, the intervention. And interestingly, the next day, so the Canadian press uh, mentioned that she had been called a warmonger. The next Next day, when she did um, uh, a, um, a press conference again promoting the budget, uh, the, uh, 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 one of the articles was all focused on how um, what, sort of criticism of military spending. So I would like to believe that the intervention and prodding her as being a warmonger that that contributed to the media the next day also sort of asking questions down that down that path, which of course is a would be a, you know is a good thing. So you, you didn't uh, get arrested this time or you didn't have your bank account frozen, nothing like that? I didn't get arrested this time uh, for either of those. Uh, but actually, interestingly, uh, uh, two weeks ago, uh, between um, the, uh, the Trudeau one and the Christian Freeland one, the U.S. ambassador was speaking at a hotel downtown. And I tried to get inside to that. And I actually did get arrested. And I have I got charged and I have I have charges uh, uh, coming up. They, they accused me of, of, of assault, which is totally ridiculous. Whereas when I tried to get in the room, they actually assaulted me by throwing, throwing me to the ground. Um, but uh, but um, in that case, they actually, you know, kept me in the back of a paddy wagon or a cop car for an hour and a half. And they told me that the reason why they were coming down hard on me for this was partly because of the previous disruption of, uh, of Melanie Jolie. And it was sort of like cumulative. Um, but, but I think it's actually interesting that they take the U.S. ambassador more seriously than they take the Canadian prime minister, because I think that a disruption of the U.S. ambassador would be viewed as like a diplomatic incident. And it, you know, could, could have embarrassing, uh, uh, you know, relations, uh, you know, embarrass, uh, Canada, U.S., uh, uh, relations. Um, so they actually took that uh, more, they were more aggressive on that than they were on the other uh, incidents. A message from our sponsors. The Nomos app will help you survive COVID-1984 and the Great Reset. Nomos is a time bank that can be used by communities anywhere in the world. You just need to talk people into using it. For example, if you go to your barber for a 30-minute haircut, your barber receives 30 minutes in his time bank. He can then use that time to pay for an appointment with the doctor. I've spoken to the developer who is passionate about creating solutions for surviving and thriving in the apocalypse. Nomos is available in both English and Spanish. Hurry and visit nomos.net before they roll out the cashless society and put you in the algorithm ghetto. Also, if you need health insurance that covers you wherever you may roam, check out my friend James Guzman's Borderless Health Insurance. One of the great things about living internationally is saving money on health care, but private care overseas can be expensive. Go to borderlesshealthinsurance.com to watch a short presentation on expat and digital nomad healthcare and sign up for a free consultation to review your options. Geopolitics and Empire needs funding. You can leave a donation 
book a consultation, or become a member, which gets you access to my brief weekly commentary, a monthly newsletter of my thoughts, a private telegram, a monthly members group call, and my second premium broadcast called Dissident Thinker, where I conduct interviews and provide solo analysis. Dissident Thinker is also available on Rockfin and for supporters on Locals. Well, it's Washington. You're getting closer to the head of the imperial <laughs> snake. Uh, and you know, then just to get your thoughts on Canada and Ukraine uh, as well, I think it was some weeks ago I read that a Canadian defense minister announced that they were giving, as you said, just straight up uh, arms to Ukraine so much that Canada was then lacking funds uh, or arms for its its own self, like uh, which is pretty crazy. For, um, and, you know, Trudeau just announced Canada will be sending heavy weapons to Ukraine. He's in close contact with Zelensky. He's very responsive to uh, Ukraine's needs. Um, and so you've also written that the Russian invasion is both rational and imperialistic. Uh, I would tend to agree. What's your wider and general view on the Ukraine conflict, uh, which many say is a, a proxy war between US, EU, NATO uh, and Russia? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that it, it's both, um, you know, Russia responded, I, I think it's clearly contrary to international law, the Russia, Russia's invasion. And it, I think Russia's response is partly a reflection of the fact that it's a militarized country. It, it's a, it's a, has a long, you know, imperial history and it, it's responded in the way it has uh, to clearly aggressive policies by US, Canada, Britain, primarily. Um, it's responded in the way it has because of its militaristic, imperialistic uh, kind of, um, 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 orientation. Um, but, but Canada is really a central player in all this is it's, it, it, um, you know, Canada has been a, a proponent of, of anti-Russian uh, nationalistic forces in the Ukraine um, since before uh, Ukraine's uh, independence from the Soviet Union. I mean, Christian Freeland, uh, the current uh, uh, deputy prime minister, she was there as a, as a, like a 20 year old in the late 1980s, like promoting uh, oppositional groups within uh, uh, Ukraine. There's a whole longer history of Canada cultivating, uh, uh, you know, right wing, the, you know, the, those who allied with the Nazis during World War II as a force to undermine uh, the Soviet Union. So there, there's this you know, long history of, of, of Canada uh, participating in, in, that, in that effort. Um, but in, in you know, recent decades, that escalation has just sort of you know, continued from, from the point of independence. Most importantly, in 2004, with the uh, Orange Revolution, it was the Canadian ambassador that this is, they admitted this openly, that they were coordinating the uh, you know, opposition EU, U.S. ambassadors, uh, their opposition to the to the to the government, uh, and ultimately they had a, they claimed there was you know fraudulent elections, and they pumped in a bunch of money, supported a bunch of different group, opposition groups that succeeded in in um, in uh, getting their their candidate in, into the presidency. Um, more significantly, uh, in terms of understanding today, in uh, you know with the 2014 uh, the overthrow of, uh, of Viktor Yanukovych, um, the Canadian government played a very important role in that, and and it didn't. And some people try to frame that as you know just supporting this popular uprising, and there clearly was a, a very important popular component to the movement against Yanukovych. Just as there was, let's be clear, in 2002 when Hugo Chavez was ousted, there were. I think into the hundreds of thousands of people marching in Caracas against 
uh, Chavez. There is a history. I don't, I don't want to claim Chavez and Yanukovych are the you know, same politically. They're not. But, but there's a long history of you know, foreign uh, instigated coups that have a popular component uh, um, uh, to them. But the Canadian government was, was working to undermine uh, Yanukovych from, from the get-go, right, when he became um, a president. And, uh, and they certainly didn't like the fact that he brought in legislation saying that you know, Ukraine wouldn't, wouldn't join NATO. And then immediately after the 2004 uh, overthrow of Yanukovych, they, you know, they reversed that legislation and, and opened the door to, to NATO uh, expansion. So Canada played an important role in the ouster of Yanukovych. For instance, um, during the last week of the protests, the uh, opposition, the Maidan protesters, used the Canadian embassy. They were based in the Canadian embassy, including far-right. We know that including far-right activists. Um, Early in the Maidan protests, uh, John Baird, Canada's foreign minister, went to the square and uh, and supported. And and Paul Grodd, the head of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, a uh, very right-wing uh, group, announced that Canada's foreign minister was there at the square, and apparently people started chanting, Canada, Canada. You can see there's, there's, um, there's uh, images of the Canadian flag being uh, um, hoisted up at the Maidan uh, uh, protests in one of the protest uh, tents. So Canada supported um, the, the, the coup uh, forces or the, the, the bid to overthrow Yanukovych. Canada also promoting uh, eastern expansion of NATO, going back into the early 1990s, right? Uh, Jean Chrétien, when he becomes prime minister in 93, immediately, not, you know, within months of, of becoming prime minister, starts pushing for NATO expansion east, starts criticizing the Americans for not going fast enough with NATO expansion. And then when the first three uh, uh, countries uh, get brought in uh, to NATO, Eastern European countries, there's not even a debate in the House of Commons in Canada. They just, they just, it's just an order of council. There's not even like a public debate. Even though if you look at the stories in the corporate media at the time, they repeatedly talk about how Russia was not happy with this, right? And this is before uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. This is this is during Yeltsin's time. And Krejciak even spends time like talking to Russian officials saying, no, no, this is not directed against you. This is not nothing to be worried about, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so Canada has been um, pushing a, 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 you know, sort of NATO expansion uh, eastward. It, it supported the 2004 ouster of Yanukovych. Um, after Yanukovych was ousted, uh, Canada instigates the Operation uh, Unifier, the training of, of uh, the Ukrainian military that had, you know, partly collapsed because they didn't want to, you know, kill, you know, in the civil war, they didn't want to, you know, kill other, other Ukrainians. And in fact, Jason Kenney, who is a former defense minister, right-wing uh, uh, Harper uh, minister, uh, Petra uh, uh, Poroshenko, the former uh, uh, Ukrainian president, actually says that, that Jason Kenney is the godfather of the modern Ukrainian military for his role in instigating the training mission uh, um, of the of uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, forces. And, and just recently, Radio Canada reported that they spent uh, $900 million dollars over eight years on that training mission. And that's, and, um, and they also talked about how they showed all these examples of how far right neo-Nazi types were trained by Canadian uh, 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 trainers. Alongside that, there's of course, you know, weapons initially before uh, the full-fledged uh, Russian invasion, they, they frame those weapons as always defensive, right? Um, which, you know, night goggles, uh, you know, flak jackets, that stuff, is that defensive? I, you know, it's, that's up for, up, up for discussion. But, but basically, the Canadian government has been really, uh, you know, 
pushing the Ukraine to go in an anti-Russia direction and has been right at the center of building up uh, uh, the Ukrainian uh, uh, military. And I think to take a, a broader perspective of Canada-Russia uh, relations, we have to remember that Canada invaded Russia in 1917, right? 6,000 uh, 6, Canadian troops invaded Russia, uh, even after the end of World War I, that ostensibly the, motive, the rationale for the invasion was to get Russia to come back into, into World War I. But even after the end of World War I, Canadian troops uh, landed in, in Vladivostok. But the, the, so, you know, during, after that period, uh, Canada tr did, refused to have relations with Russia. Uh, uh, you know, there was a brief period where there was some degree of alignment during World War II, but then immediately you go into the, you know, the Cold War and the, you know, Iron Curtain. So if you look at, a, you know, the century long, or if you can go before that, you go to Crimea in the mid 1800s, Canadians helped the British in the war for Crimea with, with Russia. So if you take the long perspective, you know, 150, 170 years, Canada has basically been at conflict with Russia throughout this whole period. So looking at what's going on in Ukraine within that context, I think helps to say, yes, what's happening to Ukrainians right now is horrible. And, and Russia deserves the primary blame for the horror we're seeing right now, but there is a context uh, that has brought us to this, this horrible situation. And the Canadian government has been right at the center of, of escalating uh, that, uh, that context. Yeah, and this is exactly the way I like to look at things with, the, with this broad context. Uh, I was interviewed recently by my colleague on TNT Radio, uh, and I was bringing up, I mean, you have to go back hundreds of years where you saw the French and Napoleon try to invade Russia, they failed. And then, you know, Hitler and the Nazis tried and then they failed. Uh, and I also view what's happening now is, you know, the, the West has provoked uh, Russia, as you said, by this uh, NATO uh, aggression. And then Ru Russia felt like it had to preemptively do what it did. And it's eye-opening what, what you just described. You know, a lot of us think that we, all, we always think it's the U.S. You know, uh, we've seen uh, news stories of how the CIA has been training uh, Ukrainian uh, forces. And you just brought up how, you know, Canada has been doing that as well. Canada has a huge role, as you just outlined. And we, we completely forget about that. We just think U.S. and Europe. Um, do you have any thoughts then on where this might go like people talk about escalation in a world war three scenario uh, what are your thoughts on what, what you know the aftermath of what will happen with ukraine well i have to say i find it incredibly scary how it's a this is the spiral of escalation is remarkable within canadian uh, politics and i think that more or less uh, is exists within within you and US politics as well um where you know what they were saying you know a month ago they they were you know initially it was you know no weapons then it was defensive weapons and now then it was you know some more offensive weapons and now it's like they're boasting about how we're sending heavy artillery you know what's next right i mean you're not getting that far away from like are we going to start sending, you know, nuclear weapons, right? Like, like what, right, where is that? Or the mother, whatever, the, the bomb that the Americans dropped on Afghanistan, the mother of all uh, bombs, whatever that was uh, called, um, you know, so, so um, that, that is uh, uh, very uh, troubling. And, and I'm not seeing uh, the off-ramp. I'm not seeing, you know, simultaneously, 
There's nothing about negotiation. The Canadian officials, you know, they they would never publicly say we're we're trying to undermine negotiations, but clearly everything they're doing is trying to undermine uh, uh, negotiations and and uh, you know a piece of it. They I think they think they have Russia caught in a in a in a in a um, a damaging uh, situation, and it's fairly low cost from the perspective of of Ottawa and and uh, Washington. The Ukrainians are most of those who are dying are, are are Ukrainian, and and they're willing to just you know keep pumping in the weapons until there's there's uh, uh, there's no more Ukrainians that are you know to be killed kind of kind of kind of situation. Um, so uh, I, I don't I don't know um, you know where where this will go. I I, I hope that there will be um, you know negotiations as quick as possible, and you know there's no there's no justice is coming out of this. Right, that's that's clear. Right, it's any scenario is, a, is going to be an unjust situation and all kinds of violation of international law. It's just it's, it's a question of minimizing uh, the damage, and the damage is also not just directly. I mean, the Ukrainians are clearly those. The, who are you know the worst of it, but but it's also the the, the broader political uh, reverberations of this. I mean, you know, you have huge increase of military spending in, in you know in many countries at a time where we really we have to be devoting all uh, our our resources towards um, uh, you know fighting the climate crisis, which is which is you know barreling down. Uh, the, it, just the, the political attention that's been devoted to Ukraine has taken away from, you know, reporting on the UN IP, IPC uh, uh, reports uh, about the, you know, where the the uh, climate crisis is going. So, so there's already, you know, these very damaging um, uh, political uh, impacts. Um, and uh, but I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that the the if there's not, you know, if anti-war forces in Canada, the U.S., and, and some other countries don't uh, start uh, raising their voices uh, to, to put the brakes on this sort of escalatory uh, uh, policies. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't surprise me if, if uh, Canadian and U.S. troops openly, I think there already are almost certainly some U.S. troops and probably some Canadian troops on the ground in Ukraine, but that they start becoming openly uh, involved in, in, uh, in the um, uh, conflict and and that just uh, just has uh, you know greater and greater dangers that are possible. Yeah, and uh, I've mentioned this before. If you lately, and we, we've seen on U.S. media, NBC, and other such outlets, they've been bringing on soldiers, openly calling for you know sending U.S. They were literally saying direct conflict with Russia to send American troops literally fire on Russian troops. Uh, so they're basically calling for World War III. And then there's articles coming out of New York Times discussing now tactical um, mini, nu mini nukes. And so, yeah, uh, that can happen. And as well, you you know, I recently interviewed French intellectual Terry Maison of Voltaire Network, and he was his view was that this Ukraine conflict was meant to uh, destroy the Europe or the European Union. Um, in, in any case, we're going to see the reverberations of we've got the energy issue that uh, this is putting a big, um, uh, you know, it's creating problems for the economy, inflation, and many people are suffering uh, economically uh, as well all over the planet, breaking down supply chains. Um, I thought I thought it'd be also worth mentioning, uh, you know, propaganda in the media space. Uh, I, I assign portions of your book. I think it's your 2009 book, uh, the Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy is reading 
for my uh, students years ago when I taught North America politics um, here in Mexico. It was a great resource uh, in your 2016 book, uh, A Propaganda System, How Government, Corporations, Media and Academia Sell War and Exploitation. Uh, it details how the corporate elites um, funding for university programs uh, and, and think tanks, um, you know, basically that system of, of propaganda. And I, when I was teaching in Mexico, I, when the topic of Canada, Canada came up, I cannot tell you how many times I heard, the, especially the female students, exclaiming how handsome, you know, and amazing Trudeau was. They were completely like blinded, and you know, they thought everything about Canada was great. The, pro the programming and propaganda was so strong, and I felt it my job to try and break that trance. Uh, could you just comment on, you know, uh, today in Canada, and not just Canadian, but you know, the American and just in general the Western propaganda um, regarding, you know, the, the push for war and, and all of this. Yeah, I mean, it's unrelenting, to be honest with you. Like to, today's uh, National Post newspaper, now it's about two two months into the uh, Russian uh, invasion. All four stories on the front page are dealing with Russia, Ukraine. I get, I'm, I was, I was going to look into this uh, actually just after this interview. Uh, I, I, I bet you that, that they, in today's paper, the National Post has as much coverage of Russia, Ukraine as they had uh, of the conflict in the Donbass in the previous eight years right before the russian invasion this just is today's single paper, single uh, issue of the paper and 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 or you know even probably you know it's a quarter as much as they've covered the war in yemen over the past uh, 7 years um, so they the media is just completely uh, uh, you know pushing uh, the beats, the drum beats of war and of, it's kind of contradictory because on one hand, we're not supposed to be in this war. Canada's not supposed to be fighting this war, but they clearly are acting like we, like we are, we are, you know, fight, fighting this, fighting this war, which I think in some ways is, you know, obviously closer to the truth. Canada is involved in this war, but, but the, yeah, the media uh, sphere, I mean, on foreign policy, um, at the best of times, there's very limited space for, you know, critical discussion of Canadian uh, uh, foreign policy. Uh, um, and uh, and in a, and at a time like this, um, the that that limited discussion uh, is 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 almost uh, uh, nil. I did a story about the uh, the chief um, uh, military reporter at the uh, CBC, the main uh, state uh, uh, broadcaster just actually before the Russian invasion, just at the time when there was sort of ramping up of tensions. And I, and I, uh, cause I, cause I always wonder this is that, you know, are these reporters uh, ignorant, lazy, or are they just, you know, serving power? And I showed how Murray Brewster uh, is his name. Um, how that if he just would have reported on what he had previously reported on. So if he would just would have been lazy, he would have done his his readers and his uh, viewers a uh, uh, much better service. So he had reported on the fact that that he was actually the one who exposed the fact that that the the far right or that the uh, protesters, the Maidan protesters, used the Canadian embassy in flagrant violation of Canadian law uh, or of international law to to oust uh, Yanukovych. So if he would have reported on that, that would have been context that readers would have liked, that were that would have been very helpful to readers. He reported on previously that when Canada pushed to have uh, Ukraine uh, join NATO, that Germany, France, and of course Russia opposed that push. Uh, so that would have been something that he could provide some context on. He also previously reported on the fact that Canada had trained uh, some neo-Nazi uh, uh, types with Operation Unifier. Again, that was context that would have been helpful 
to uh, to people to make sense of the you know the growing tensions, but instead he just basically repeated exactly what the NATO officials and what the Canadian government uh, wanted. So so you know it's not a question of laziness. Uh, it, it's it was a question of of understanding the sort of political uh, context and you know being uh, deferent to power and and basically just uh, puppeting what what um, what was uh, you know necessary to <laughs> from from his standpoint to maintain his position as the chief uh, uh, defense uh, correspondent at the CBC. But yeah, it, it generalizes. I think that there is this Canada has done a very good job to, to speaking specifically to the whole Trudeau kind of uh, uh, myth is of presenting itself as a sort of liberal, uh, less bad than Washington, uh, sort of more kind of humane. Um, uh, and, and people around the world have, have not just in Canada, but people around the world have to a large extent bought into that in large part because Canada does have powerful propaganda apparatus itself, right? The fact that they speak the two main colonial languages, English and French, uh, you know, well-educated population that has, you know, people within influential media around the world, you know, has things like uh, the uh, Radio Canada International, which is, you know, Canada's equivalent to the, um, to the, uh, uh, U.S. Uh, Radio Free Europe, or what is it? Yeah, Radio Free Europe, Europe, exactly. And uh, uh, so, you know, it has, it has this, um, you know, powerful uh, propaganda system to push its uh, perspective around the world, which, which if there isn't, you know, a progressive forces within Canada challenging that and putting out, a, you know, a counter narrative, then of course people around the world will tend to, will tend to uh, uh, absorb that. But I have to say that, you know, Trudeau, as much as he's sort of framed as this, you know, positive uh, politician, um, when they went for the uh, Canada under Trudeau tried to get a seat on the United Nations Security Council. Uh, I guess it's now uh, almost uh, almost two years ago. Um, they were defeated, right? They were defeated badly uh, in that in that uh, in that vote. So so the people, you know, within um, governments around the world, um, they understand that Canada is is, is this is this um, very closely aligned with Washington. Uh, a country that also has, you know, important, this massive mining sector that's involved in abuses abroad as a significant banking sector that's a big player around the world. And so I think that, you know, people, the people who were, you know, the diplomats around the world sort of understand that the, the rhetoric is, um, is, uh, is not to be uh, taken too seriously. Yeah, the Canadian mining companies here in, in Mexico, I, I, I'm a nationalized Mexican, so they're, they're, they're taking our uh, resources. Um, I just, you know, one of my last questions uh, in your 2018 book, Left, Right, Marching to the Beat of Imperial Canada, uh, you explain how Canada's major left-wing political party has backed unjust wars and how the left has gone along with the war machine. We see this in the U.S. as well. Uh, I like how Max Blumenthal of Grey Zone recently put it. Uh, he was saying that basically today the main constituency for World War III um, are the liberal uh, Democrats, he gives credit for this achievement to the intelligence community and national security states through all of this, you know, media manipulation and stuff. What's your take on how the you know, establishment has been able to mold the opinion and how, um, you know, a large part of the left is going along with the, the war narrative? Well, I mean, today, uh, Jagmeet Singh, who's a leader of the NDP, which is the, you know, social democratic traditional left party um, 
he was asked if what he thought about Justin Trudeau yesterday saying that uh, Canada was sending uh, uh, heavy uh, heavy weaponry, heavy artillery, and he uh, he said yes, we, we should be sending, we should be uh, giving the Ukrainians you know whatever they need. I don't know where that where he was going to put the, the end point on the whatever they need. Because like I said, I mean, you were talking about, you know, tactical nuclear weapons or something, right? Like how, how far are they willing to go down that path? But but they have just um, uh, consistently uh, supported the, you know, they they supported this budget that had a half billion dollars in weapons to Ukraine. They supported the budget that had a massive increase in military spending. Uh, they put, it was an NDP that actually put forward a resolution, the House of Commons, uh, that was, uh, that was uh, um, you know, uh, basically supporting uh, uh, the conflict. Uh, they all showed up when Zelensky spoke and, you know, gave him a standing ovation. Um, you know, before Russia's uh, invasion, uh, one NDP MP, Leah Gazan in Winnipeg, uh, the, one of the more left-wing of the MPs, you know, made some comments saying that this, we, you know, we shouldn't be supporting this, you know, far-right uh, regime in, in, uh, in, uh, in Kyiv. And and she got, you know, attacked viciously. The media came at her uh, uh, viciously and, and the rest of the party basically, you know, hung her out to dry. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, the, the NDP has completely gone along. They are, you know, been cheerleading. The, the, the NDP's uh, um, uh, foreign critic was, you know, pushing for Ukraine to, to join NATO just a few months ago, right? Just before the, you know, the, the tensions really got going. So, you know, they, they completely, I mean, that's partly tied to the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. There really, there is a, a, um, a Ukrainian Canadian uh, lobby uh, in this country that is uh, influential. Um, uh, and so, so that is a dynamic that, that, that does, uh, that does uh, play out in understanding why the NDP is so aggressive, but more generally, I mean, the NDP supported 2011 bombing of, of, uh, of Libya. They, uh, it was a, you know, unanimous in the House of Commons. The, on the second vote in the House of Commons, the, the sole Green MP, Elizabeth May, voted against, but the first vote was unanimous. Um, I think a few of the NDP MPs just, you know, you know left, you know, weren't, weren't in the House, so they didn't have to vote in favor of it. Um, and if you go back, you know, in, in 90, 1999, when Canada was part of the NATO bombing of, of uh, the former Yugoslavia, uh, then it was, the, you know, the, probably the most left-wing uh, foreign affairs critic in the history of uh, the NDP, uh, Sven Robinson, somebody you know, you know, somebody who's identified with you know, like Noam Chomsky and stuff like that. Somebody who's you know, way on the left of the NDP. He he backed he backed the bombing for the first month. Finally, a, mo a month in, he 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 shifted. Um, but so there's this you know this long history. Go back to the Korean War and the you know the CCF, the predecessor NDP, supporting the the Korean War. The you know supporting the establishment of of NATO in 1949. Canada was right at the the center of establishing NATO. Canada, U.S., and Britain were really the three countries that that got it off the ground. And and the CCF NDP um, uh, political party they they uh, they backed it and and they and then whenever members. Uh, uh, opposed these efforts. They did everything they could, all kinds of ugly anti-democratic shenanigans within the party to block um, resolutions challenging uh, uh, challenging NATO. And it ultimately took two decades for activists within the party to finally get a get a resolution uh, uh, passed 
criticizing NATO is partly because they were members were being thrown out of the party when they um, when they challenged NATO, including people who had been previously elected as NDP uh, uh, members. Um, so, so they're they're wedded. They're wedded to militarism. They're wedded to uh, imperialism. They're they're uh, they they don't feel um, much pressure from from the grassroots within or outside of the party. Um, and the only times when they do come out against wars, like 2003 Iraq invasion, the, the earlier uh, Iraq invasion, that the early 90s when Canada actually formally participated, they, the only time they do come out uh, critical of these wars is when there is a big groundswell of you know, popular uh, uh, activism. Their de facto uh, orientation is to just go along with whatever the foreign policy establishment is pushing. It's only when there's you know you know years or decades of, of activism, like on the question of Palestine, for instance, where they finally start start you know taking you know more uh, more uh, sensible or just justice oriented uh, uh, positions. Yeah, and from my reading uh, of history and understanding, and talking to some of my recent guests. Um, they, you know, I think a third, uh, I've been told, of uh, Ukrainian armed forces are uh, some sort of neo-Nazis. So it's like we're, our Western governments are supporting, you know, modern day um, Nazism, which is crazy. Um, do you have uh, any other, is there any other thought or issue, uh, you know, you wanted to get across? Well, just on that, I think it's 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 somewhat ironic that the people who are, who, you know, label kind of, uh, so many people within Canada as, uh, and I often incorrectly as, as Nazis or neo-Nazis, they're quick to label like, you know, some, you know, right-wing, uh, activist who, who, you know, I may not agree, may not agree with a lot of their positions. Uh, they are quick to label them, uh, uh, Nazis. And then, then they're, they're, they're simultaneously, they're, they're, they're happy to like pump in, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of support for a military that has, you know, literal Nazis, people who are, who are, you know, not, they're not, they're not couching anything. Um, that is somewhat, uh, um, uh, ironic or contradictory, but it, but it fits to, it fits to a long, uh, history of, of, uh, of, you know, sort of, uh, progressive, uh, you know, wanting sort of, um, socialistic, uh, reforms within Canada or within, you know, North America, and then being a, you know, an objective and clear ally of, of imperialism abroad. And, uh, and you see that, you know, within, even within, uh, um, the labor movement, um, I think to some extent, uh, less so today than previously, um, you know, part of it, of course, is just, uh, just racism. Part of it is, is, um, is the, power of the dominant media uh part of it is is just um it's just where you know uh it's easier to do that there's there's not the organized political forces um but it's really to me it's really um the the, the work that we need to be doing is uh is building those uh, uh political forces that can uh uh change that uh that um political dynamic yeah you sort of uh, answered my next question what do we do for people like us who don't like uh war and you mentioned racism as well uh we've seen some clips of pundits commentators in europe uh, in the u.s really freaking out about you know ukraine and and, and their situation and, and and the refugees because it's europe i think even prince williams made some comment like this uh so you know when it's 
you know, Europeans suffering like this. Oh, it's so bad. But no one talks about Yemen, you know, for seven years, more than 300,000 people killed by, you know, also Western sponsored uh, Saudi, you know, backing the Saudis. No one talks about that. But, you know, somehow the European lives are more valuable. I view everyone uh, across across the planet equally as valuable um, our, our lives. What are the best uh, websites and places for people to find you uh, and to support you? Well, for me, it's just my website, uh, evingler.com. People can sign up for my newsletter whenever I publish a new article. Uh, you'll, you'll receive that. Um, I, I do, uh, I'm a fellow with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, uh, and people can get on that uh, listserv. We do um, you know, a critical uh, discussion and, of Canadian foreign policy and, and also uh, spur some, uh, some campaigning. Um, and then, yeah, I think that there's, you know, there's all kinds of like left-wing Canadian uh, media outlets that people may not be familiar with, pe- places like uh, Canadian Dimension, uh, Spring Mag, uh, Rabble.ca, uh, which people can, uh, can see my, uh, my, uh, my work on sometimes. All right. I'll include all of the links in the description, whether you're listening on Apple or some video platform. And everyone, of course... Be sure to, at least to check out one of Eve's uh, books. Uh, they're great if you like uh, the subject matter we've been discussing. You can also find him uh, on Twitter. He hasn't yet been deplatformed. Uh, thanks for coming back on Geopolitics and Empire. Thanks a lot for having me. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes. Facebook restricts our page. Reddit and Twitter take down posts. And after the Associated Press mentioned Geopolitics and Empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help Geopolitics and Empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.